0: So today was the first day that I've worked since our unit was designated the second COVID ICU in my hospital, and um, I don't know what the f has happened for the past 13 hours. Honestly, guys, it felt like I was working in a war zone. Um, Completely isolated from my team members, limited resources, limited supplies, limited responses from physicians because they're just as overwhelmed as we are dealing with a ton of other stuff so basically i just spent the last 13 hours like treating two critically ill covid patients on the vet basically by myself and this is my new normal for the
1: next however many
0: months that it takes for this virus to die down so like i'm already breaking so for
2: From the studios of Meme and Pod, housed in the Department of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Memphis, this is Life in Quarantine.
3: Welcome to Life in Quarantine. I'm your host, Katrina Smith.
2: And I'm your host, Kix Patterson. This week's topic is healthcare, and that is kind of a personal thing for Katrina and I. We both have family members that work in healthcare. For me, I have uh, a couple of aunts that work in healthcare. One is a nurse, one is a manager of a uh, normal clinic. Um, so they've been having to really readjust how their procedures work and how things come in. Um, they're having people wait outside in their cars and calling them in. So she's been doing a lot more. Of Non face to face. She was always kind of the face of these clinics. And now she's having to be behind more glass and be behind phone calls instead of person to person. And so she feels like it's kind of lost that personal touch. I also have a cousin that is working in um, assisted living homes. And so she's kind of on a thing where she really can't even tell me what's going on inside the the living homes because they have them on quiet. Even if they were to get a COVID case, she couldn't tell me about it. I've tried getting information about it, and I can't. Um, and so it kind of puts all this stuff into, into being a secret, and I can't really find information out. So I, it's like close relatives can't tell me what they're doing at their jobs right now. Um and Katrina, I know your mom works in healthcare. What's going on with her?
3: Yeah, kick. She works downtown at the new concourse building for Methodist, and she's like, you know, people aren't. She works in. Uh, insurance for ki- like little small babies that have to go to labana Transport. That's like her department, and you know because people aren't really going to you know the hospital, people not really using ambulance. Their work is kind of slowed, and so also too before that happened, they also moved them home. So she works from home like two days a week our office she kind of revamped it to her own personal space for work and they have to stay you know um they give out masks to them and they have to stay you know so far apart and it's just kind of a ghost town because as you know saint jude and alsac is also down there so it's kind of like a ghost town when she does go into work and everybody's taking extra precaution i think saint jude is even um people that they have hired on they were training them from home so it's definitely been different and i I know when she calls people or patients or even other their hospitals and stuff like people are really working from home so this is definitely different for them because they're used to having loads of work but now as you said people aren't really going you know to the hospital there's not really a lot of face-to-face contact so it's definitely different for her
2: yeah I can imagine and I know I have a friend or two that work for um, St. Jude Alsac and um, some of those that are in marketing positions and whatnot, so not directly healthcare, but they you know they work for a healthcare industry. Um, they're being laid off, or in some cases, just fired because the, these companies can't afford to keep them right now because everything is so stressed with COVID. They're having to make sure they stay extra staff in the healthcare, so for on the actual front, so they're having to take down a lot of people who are in additional roles. Um, And then also, I I almost forgot to mention, I have an aunt and who's based in Florence, Alabama, um, and she has a lot of work with surgeries and most of her surgeries she works with are elective surgeries. So right now, like you said, it's a ghost town. Nobody can really do those in some states. You're not allowed to do elective surgeries right now because of the pandemic. So her work is very, very limited right now. I mean, she was going from doing multiple surgeries a day to doing maybe one to two a week. And um, I, you know, I can't imagine going from, you know, for Katrina and I, we, we both are grad students, we constantly are working on something. Um, and now we just hit, hit the summer. And I guess it might kind of feel like that summer thing where it's like, you feel like you should be doing 10,000 things and there's nothing to do, or it's fully shifted and you don't know where to kind of go. So um, I imagine a lot of our healthcare workers feel mm-hmm. lost right now.
3: I I think so, too. I think they're definitely trying to rebound as best that they can. Um, I know in some of our interviews, we're going to hear about, you know, maybe some some shortage of supplies and stuff. So they're they're definitely being affected just as much as we are, if not more.
2: I I, I mean, I would say they're being affected more, Katrina, because obviously not only are they doing their jobs now, but they're on the absolute front line they are dealing with people, many of them are dealing with people who have this and their hospitals are unable to give them the supplies they need to protect themselves Um, due to those shortages you're talking about or just kind of lack of stock or anything like that. um, It's kind of sad and it really exposes, you know, how messed up healthcare and insurance is here in America. So now that we've talked about how it affects us personally and our families, let's talk about the huge impact. What does it look like nationwide and what does it look like here at home? Katrina, let's talk global stats.
3: Thanks, Kix. According to CNN, nearly 80,000 people have died in the U.S. from the coronavirus. A top model now forecasts that 137,000 Americans will die by August as governors continue lifting measures toward a reopening. Three top health officials are self-isolating after two White House staffers were infected. Vice President Mike Pence, however, will show up to work today, even though his press secretary is one of those who tested positive. According to the World Health Organization, 110 potential COVID-19 vaccines are in the works. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin phoned in to CNBC this morning, May 11th, and he said most states are cooperating with federal guidelines as they begin the process of reopening. There were 161 people who died on Sunday across the state of New York. Governor Andrew Cuomo said the number of lives lost is still too high.
2: Here at home, according to the Daily Memphian, Shelby County reported 85 new coronavirus cases on Monday, May 11th as it reported a new high in tests administered according to the Shelby County Health Department. A total of 1,843 new tests were confirmed and the positivity rate of those tests was 4.6%. There have been 42,239 total tests taken in Shelby County with a 7.8% positivity rate. The Health Department reported no new deaths for the virus on Monday, May 11th. The total remains at 67. A total of 1,921 people have recovered from the disease in Shelby County, according to the agency. In Tennessee, there have been 14,985 cases with 243 deaths as of Sunday, May 10th, according to the state's Department of Health. There have been 261,869 total tests taken statewide with a positivity rate of 5.7%. So now that we've heard what's going on around the world and here at home, let's go to the front lines and hear from our interviews. Here's what you're going to hear today.
4: But currently we're all working from home, so we're still doing the contact. So today, for example, I've still done a six to eight week review on a mum's mental health and on the baby's development, but I've had to ring her, telephone her and ask the questions over the phone. I've also done a mental health support appointment. So normally I would go to the house and do that, but I've had to telephone um, because she's really upset at being trapped in the house, she calls it. So everything that we would normally do face to face, we're having to try and adapt and do over telephone calls because it's all about the risk of infection and not spreading it. Spreading it. Spreading Our first
3: story comes it. from Katharina Walker. She sat down with healthcare visitor Jenny Chapman from Great Britain. And they spoke about how she is caring for her patients over the phone.
1: Thank you, Katrina. Um, Could you give me your full name?
4: Yeah, Jenny Chapman.
1: Great. Thank you. And thank you for agreeing to the interview today. No problem. And um, I wanted to ask, where exactly are you located? You're near London, right?
4: No, we're more near Cambridge. So it's actually Peterborough but um, we're closer to Cambridge than London. It's actually more the east of England.
1: Ah, okay. And you are a health visitor. That's what Luke told me. And what tasks does that job entail? What do you do?
4: Right, okay. So it's, it's a specialist nursing role. So we're actually, like my degree is for specialist public Specialist Community Public Health Nursing. The idea behind it is it's uh, it's for families and predominantly children, and it's for uh, spotting problems early. So in this country, when a baby is born, they go under midwives up until day 10 to 14, and then they come under the health visiting service. So I and my colleagues will go around to do a move over visits so uh, at day 10 to 14 and we do health assessments um, on the children and they continue up until the child goes to school so we do a combination of home visits and visits in a clinic setting but we also offer other services and we work very closely with children's social care so we are health representatives on child protection panels, uh, child in need.
1: Okay, and so you're primarily working with um, children or also um, people from other age groups?
4: Yeah, predominantly our focus is the voice of the child, it's called. So we're primarily focused on children up to going to school, so generally not to five. But also we can work with parents doing um, mental health support for mums that have had babies if they've got postnatal depression. We give support and advice uh, if there's domestic abuse in the home, all all different things.
1: Do you have steady clients basically or steady patients who you're visiting um, regularly for several weeks or months or um, does it rotate quickly?
4: Oh, no, the patients no. that you see. I've got children on my caseload that I've had uh, for f- four years, so they are. I'm the named health visitor when they're born, and unless I change posts or move, I've got a I've got an area that I've been working in for four years, so we're actually long-standing members of the community, and generally, parents know when the clinic is, and uh, they know that I'm their health visitor,
1: and. So what did your typical day look like um before the epi- before the epidemic started like a, just a normal day um
4: um generally uh, it, it's it, like i say it really varies but um On the the whole, I will start work, uh, look at my emails, look at my appointments that I've got for the day for the families that I'm going to see, look into their medical records, see what's been going on recently, uh, and then I will have a day of visits in the community, um, and then I will come back to Generally, I work from home quite a lot, but I can go to an NHS base, I can go to a GP surgery, any any sort of touchdown base. Uh, and then I will write on the medical records, do telephone calls, do emails. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it really varies on the visits that I'm doing.
1: Okay, and how has um, COVID-19 changed your workday? How does it look now?
4: completely at home we're only doing face-to-face visits in the home unless if there's a safeguarding need so that means that the child's at risk or if there's a a uh, urgent health need then we may uh, do visits but currently we all get daily update well we get updates a couple of times a day we've all had to do refresher training for the covid for just reminding us on how to use ventilators how to use um sats um how to do blood gases so we've all had to do that training but currently it's very different because we normally do all our visits in the in the home um but currently we're all working from home so we're still doing the contact so today for example I've still done a six to eight week review on a mum's mental health and on the baby's development but I've had to ring her telephone her and ask the questions over the phone I've also done a mental health support appointment so normally I would go to the house and do that but I've had to telephone um, because she's really upset at being trapped in the house she calls it so everything that we would normally do face to face we're having to try and adapt and do over telephone calls because it's all about the risk of infection and not spreading it so at the moment where everybody in the UK can, where be, even as nurses, if it's deemed that we can do it via telephone calls, then we are encouraged to do it, do the visits from our, our home.
1: What kind of um, effect does it have on your patients that you can't see them face to face, that you can't come to, to their houses? How are they taking that
4: uh, I think it's it's not just about us so the lady that she rung me yesterday because she was really tearful and really upset because she's finding it she's a very active mum her children go to lots of group her child goes to preschool she's a very active outdoorsy exercising type of mum and she's got a two and a half year old and a nine week old baby and where parents would normally have Uh, wider family members to help they haven't got that they're being asked to stay indoors and this mum her husband is still going out to work so generally she would call on her parents or her friends just for peer support or they can't do that they can only do it over the telephone so she's really upset and finding it difficult she feels like that she's not doing a good job as a mum she can't see or she couldn't see that she was doing a good job. So today, my appointment involved saying to her, well, tell me what your little girl's doing. I can hear her laughing. I can hear you talk. So it's just about reminding someone that even though they feel like they're not doing a good job, it's giving them giving them the uh, space to talk about how they're feeling and encouraging them.
1: Mm-hmm. I can imagine that your job has become um, harder since COVID-19, like doing this over over the phone and not being able to see our patients. I guess it's it's also the other way around. How how? are you handling the situation how are you um doing
4: you have to constantly think about how you can so how you can assess a child without seeing it so ordinarily if i was doing so for example i i was doing the six to eight week check on the baby today ordinarily i would see that baby i would weigh the child i would do its head measurements i would look inside its mouth i would just give it a total head-to-toe examination and I can't do that and I have to rely on what the parent is telling me.
1: But you also mentioned that you um, do go out when there are very serious cases, right?
4: Yes. Well, I haven't yet, but we have – so locally what we've got arranged – Is that we've got a clinic that has been set up specifically with COVID in mind. So the person has all the, I mean, has the protective. Uh, protective equipment and if that child does need to be seen face to face for whatever medical reason it is then we can arrange for the parents take the child into this specific building at a specific time and it's all about reducing the risk of infection and cross-contamination so it's just a completely different way of working we're having to all try and do this do these things without seeing people and even passing on resources and passing on information and teaching people, we're having to try and do that without being face-to-face. We're having to try and teach via um, printouts and using the internet. It's it's very it's, – it's actually really tricky.
1: So um, is the situation right now – frustrating you or
4: (laughs) yeah yeah because I'm so used to uh going into people's houses and feeling as a nurse you feel like you can fix everything and that it it doesn't matter if you're just sharing a kind word or having um an if you're making someone feel better just by being there and the mum that was crying on the phone today uh, I said I was honest with her and said I feel really I feel really sorry because I can't fix this for you I can't make it better for you I can't make it that you can go out I said I can just listen to you and try and support you and give you um strategies to try and help you feel better and feel more positive about being indoors with the children. So
1: there is this really important part of healthcare missing right now, being face-to-face with people and being able to actually comfort them in person. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And, And I think, I think that is particularly in community, in this type of community nursing. But equally with that, with my job, we are, um, how can I? If if we were required to, if the need was there, we could be asked to go into an acute setting. So that would be into hospital. And currently, the NHS or the UK is, is coping very well with the numbers that we've got. Uh, but if need was, we could be asked to move elsewhere at quite short notice.
1: And would you want? to do that because right now when you can do a lot of things at home and over the telephone it's quite safe and when you're at the hospital there's a bigger risk of of contacting the the coronavirus so what do you think about that?
4: Being a nurse and having the skills that I have uh, my heart says of course I'd do it but I'm in one of the at risk categories so I've got um, rheumatoid arthritis so I'm on immunosuppressants so the medications that I take one is a chemotherapy drug and one is a human biological Uh, so I'm in I'm not in the seriously at risk group but I'm in the mid-range so I'm encouraged to stay at home for 12 weeks so for me i think they would probably look at my uh health history and probably leave me doing what i'm doing but if it to to be honest if i was absolutely given a guarantee that i had the protective equipment and if they really did need me i would probably go i would go
1: oh that's really brave
4: I think it's a part of being a nurse (laughs) you just you you know in in all you you do you just you just if I was really needed and it it was that serious that they didn't have enough nurses then as long as I was given the protective equipment I, I would go and do it
1: did you have did you have a moment where you thought you might um have it?
4: No, um, like I, I know the signs and symptoms of it. I, yeah. I mean, we get daily updates.
1: Um, since we're talking about the NHS, I wanted to get to the subject of politics because um, the British government was kind of late in their response to the coronavirus, and um, they cl- and they kept the strategy of herd immunity mm. for a pretty long time, and. Yeah. I mean, the go- lots of government officials were then sick, including your prime minister. How do you as a health, um, as someone who's professionally in health, how do you think about the strategy of, of the government?
4: It was wrong. I I immediately knew when those cases were high in Italy and it started going to Spain, I was even preparing my families then thought this will be happening so when I look back on some of my contacts on the medical records before we was even put into official lockdown I was already preparing people so well baby clinic I was I was already saying that I think this is going to be what's required and what's happening so they were a good two weeks late from my mind i know they probably wanted to see how it was going to pan out but quite honestly they are quite honest in admitting their mistakes so i i think we're all a little bit right it's how it is we just have to get on with it equally the equipment has been an absolute shambles so ppe in particular is something that the nhs has really been lacking there have there is not enough PPE to go around. Um, and as much as the government is saying, well, it's getting there, it's getting there, I think for some specialities, they are having to shout and say, and, and I do know of cases, certainly a few weeks ago, because I'm on a professional's page, where people were being asked to look after people without adequate protection.
1: How is your... Your reaction, how do you feel about the situation and the fact that the government um, started so late on on responding to the coronavirus? Uh, Did that make you
4: angry? Yeah, you kind of feel angry, but you get very, it is what it is and we have to deal with it. So anger is at the moment is a wasted emotion and you've just got to do the best that you can with what you've got. But after... It does need looking at. So after this has calmed down, after this does, then perhaps they need to make sure in future, if anything like this happens, it's better prepared. We're better prepared.
1: Okay. And, um... You, Your son was in the United States during the um, outbreak. Yeah. Did you follow the situation um, in America?
4: Yeah, I, I w- I'm glad he's home. I think Trump's an idiot.
1: Why do you think that?
4: You've only got to look at him and listen to him. But, but apart from that, <laughs> um, they're total. There is no cohesive there is no togetherness there is no sense of community they i'm speaking really broadly and i'm not like this generally i like everybody but from what i can get from luke and from what i see they seem to be a population that seems to be very out from them for themselves and not for community so it's not about the greater good it's about an individual group good
1: so what's your advice for the United States?
4: They need one plan for everybody and that's how it is. It's not about individuals. It's about a collective community response and what's best for everybody.
1: Hmm. Do you think that... They might change after this.
4: I'd hope so, because if they get this wrong, they are a huge country with a great big population. But their health care service isn't the same as Europe's. And even within Europe, I know ours is a bit different. But fundamentally, people do get looked after and they get looked after um, quite well in America. It's all about, you know, people paying for MRI scans, people paying for x-rays, people paying for this and that. And there is a huge percentage of the populations that can't afford to pay. So you're going to potentially have thousands and thousands of people dying because they can't pay for this and they can't pay for an ambulance. And I find that really, it's just really sad. I don't know how else to put it.
1: Yeah I get that. Okay back to the UK how do you think it's going to go into the future like how's the um how are the next weeks going to look like I think they've um prolonged the lockdown for another three weeks.
4: Yeah it should be longer in my mind I think um the government is, I think what they're doing is they're giving the general public bite sizes of information. I think that most of the public can um, can cope with another three weeks if it's given in that bite size. There is absolutely no way that they're just going to say to everybody after three weeks, yes, you can go out. I think it will be a managed... Um, a managed opening so it may well be that um, some places will open or, or will have some people will be going to work and others won't so maybe people because currently like uh, Luke's dad my husband if you can't work from home you're on what's called a furlough scheme so the government is paying 80% of your wages so for my husband he can't work from home so, it could be that people like that will go out to work and that's it. Or it may be that they say you can go out for an hour's exercise a day instead of. I don't know. None of us have been told, and not even ourselves as health professionals have been told how. I think they are waiting on the scientific data to see how it progresses.
1: What kind of reaction does that give to you this this uncertainty about how how long is going to last and what's going to happen next?
4: I'm alright with it. I'm 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 not one of these people that needs a firm plan. I'm quite sort of I think if it's best for everybody then that's what we need to do.
1: Thank you so much for
3: the interview. It was really great. Back to you, Katrina. Thanks, Katrina. I enjoyed hearing a healthcare perspective from another country. More from the healthcare community when we come back.
2: Life in quarantine.
5: A lot of us are using, utilizing masks from the house. So the N95s that we wear normally, we have to go every year for a respiratory fit test to obtain the correct size for the N95 that we would use. But now, you know, um, for instance, right now I'm using masks that um, we had to cut the grass with. We just so happened to have some N95s that we bought at the store and I found in a uh, garage. Garage. Now
2: we will hear from Kyra Titwell as she sat down with registered nurse Melanie Warren, they discuss supply shortages and her new normal in the healthcare industry.
0: As the country adjusts to and protests nationwide lockdown, citizens are shining a light on a, one particular group of people healthcare workers. Around the world, healthcare workers are being celebrated, but there are also some claims of mistreatment for these vital members of our country. Today, I'm here with one of Memphis's own healthcare workers, Melanie Warren. Thank you for joining us, Melanie. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. Um, Can you tell us what your occupation is and where you work? I'm
5: a registered nurse at uh, VA Medical Center in Memphis.
0: And uh, what are your responsibilities at the VA Medical Center?
5: Um, I'm a nurse on um, a medical step-down unit, and we care for veterans that are having an acute illness. Most of the time it's Uh, abnormal heart rates, congestive heart failure, uh, detox, anything that's happening that's not a chronic situation.
0: And how long have you been working there?
5: Ten
3: years.
0: I'd like to hear about how you've been adjusting to this new environment that has, you know, been birthed out of the coronavirus. So how has your day-to-day routine changed since this all started?
5: Well, we definitely have a new normal as far as, you know, we have to go through a whole new process of just getting into the building. Everyone is screened for COVID and um, our temperature is taken prior to entering the building. You know, everyone is, it's been a problem with getting a proper... We call it PPE, personal protection equipment, uh, masks, gowns. Um, we're experiencing a shortage of items that we've taken for granted would always be there. You know, we're kind of on the offensive uh, of protecting ourselves and and monitoring the patients to see, you know, if anyone is displaying symptoms. So. It's been definitely a
0: change. Now, um, with the with the lack of resources like PPE, um, what are you having to do? Well, um, a lot of us
5: are using utilizing masks from the house. So the N95s that we wear normally, we have to go every year for a respiratory fit test to obtain the correct size for the N95 that we would use. But now, you know, um, for instance, right now I'm using masks that um, we had to cut the grass with. We just so happened to have some N95s that we bought at the store and I found in a a garage. So... um, I'm using those, and normally when we use the N95, we would throw it away after each use. But now we're having to hold on to it for, you know, seven days. We're, we're bringing it home. Um, I kind of sterilize it, spray it down, uh, and put it in a paper bag. And we're putting it in a paper bag because the virus isn't able to uh, survive on paper for, I think, Uh, about three hours. So that's why we put it in a paper bag.
0: And um, what is the condition of your patients at the VA hospital right now? Do you have any positive cases for um, coronavirus at the hospital?
5: Yes, we do. Um, We have some that are positive that, you know, they're still able to uh, be off the vent that, you know, they're they're sick enough to be in the hospital, but we're having to monitor them. But we have some that are, you know, really sick on the vent, and we're having to give them mm-hmm. vasopressors and different uh, drip medications to uh, keep their cardiac function together. So we have some that are critical.
0: And... um What is the largest demographic that you deal with at the hospital?
5: African-American males.
0: And uh, what about age ranges?
5: Mostly I would say we see from roughly I would say 50 to 80. Although we do have a 90-year-old who's intubated right now for the coronavirus.
0: Um, A serious conversation that's being held right now is about the government's plans to gradually reopen the country. And people are saying that it's probably too soon. And there are some governors that have said that they'll be reopening their states by the end of the month. So what is your professional opinion on this decision?
5: Well, I don't think it's a good decision. Um, I feel like we've done a good job at trying to reduce the spread and, you know, with shelter in place. And um, from my understanding, the goal uh, for the first step was to go 14 days without an increase in cases. So if we hadn't reached that point yet and we're trying to open back up, I think what's probably gonna happen is we're gonna see an influx in cases because people are out again and the virus is going to
0: spread. Um, What have you thought about the government's response to the pandemic in general?
5: Well, I don't think action was taken as quickly as it could have been. Um, I feel like we weren't prepared you know, as far as this situation of PPE and, you know, it was supposed to be a stockpile and it wasn't. And, you know, I, we never thought that we would be in a situation where we didn't have alcohol pads to sterilize, you know, for skin prep or uh, to sterilize hoods before we give IV medications or we don't have a mask to protect ourselves, to provide care. You know, we never thought we would see something like that happen. So I think it's a lesson learned and, you know, we all need to make better preparations in the future, you know, just in case if something like this ever happens again.
0: Being a healthcare worker right now sounds very overwhelming and frustrating. So how are you managing to keep your calm in the midst of all this?
5: Well, definitely prayer. And, you know, um, I've spoken, you know, with my husband and we've made a plan that, you know, if I feel like I've been exposed, uh, what we're going to do and uh, I take precautions to, uh, I just, I have my N95 on all the time, no matter if the patient is displaying signs or not, I have on the N95 because you never know who is, uh, has been infected and, and they're not showing symptoms
0: yet. Have you felt like you've been um, adequately compensated for your services in this time?
5: Um, no. We, we aren't receiving any hazard pay or anything like that. So I feel like um, we are in a extreme place right now. And uh, if hazard pay could be utilized, I think this is the, the best time to do it because we have uh, had some patients. But before I decided to start wearing a mask in every room, I did have a patient who, um, you know, he didn't display symptoms at first. And, you know, I was taking care of him. And as the night progressed, you know, he started um, having a fever, uh, got up to like 103. And he had a cough and all that. So they were testing him for COVID. And, you know, I've been in the room with him all night and I didn't have a mask on. So, you know, at that time we had to wait five days for the results. So thankfully he came back negative, but you know, those those couple of days were, you know, worrisome for me and worried about my family. We, bit, we definitely, you know, things have changed.
0: Um, what concerns do you have now for the future, for moving forward? What are your biggest concerns right now? My biggest
5: concern is, you know, just the, I'm hoping that we don't run out of masks and um, properly protecting myself. You know, I feel like I have a couple of masks that are adequate uh, for care. I have about five, N95s that I'm trying to make last, but you know, they weren't made to last that long. So we're all just concerned about being safe and we want to make sure that we don't get sick while trying to do our jobs.
0: Well, um, I have one more question for you. Well, it's not really a question. Do you have any advice that you can offer to our listeners? about the coronavirus and your experiences with it? I would just say, you
5: know, um, everyone isn't really concerned about it because they don't know anyone that has been affected. But I just want you to be safe and take precautions because just because they're opening the city back up and businesses are going to be opening, just kind of be aware of where you're going. And um, I would still try to, stay out of heavily populated areas and I would still try to keep some distance between myself and someone else because the the virus hadn't gone away. So there's still the potential for you know to catch it. So just be hyper vigilant.
0: Oh, I I actually have one more question. There were some reports coming in from, I believe, Hong Kong about a second wave of the virus coming through after they had stopped um, quarantine for the whole city. Mm Mm-hmm. If we open up our states now, do you think that we are in danger of another harder wave of coronavirus hitting us?
5: Most definitely.
0: Well, uh, thank you so much, Melanie, for your time. I really enjoyed hearing your perspective on the coronavirus, and I hope that um, you stay safe and healthy during this time.
2: Thank you. Same to you. Thanks, Kyra and Melanie. That wraps up this episode of Life in Quarantine podcast. Thanks for joining us for Life in Quarantine. This podcast is a production of Meman Pod Studios, housed in the Department of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Memphis.
3: It was edited and produced by Kix Patterson and me, Katrina Smith. And thank you to this week's reporters, Katharina Walker and Kyra Tidwell.
2: A special thanks to our executive producer and faculty advisor, Dr. Robbie Bird.
3: If you would like to share your story, follow us on our social media platforms at Life in Quarantine Podcast and use hashtag Life in Quarantine.
2: And don't forget to check out our website for more details on our podcast. Meet the entire team and hear the latest episode, liqpod.com. We'll see you next week.